All right. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 33, and hopefully we'll get done with all of chapter 6 also. We are continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of the Sermon on the Mount that runs from chapter 5, 6, and 7 as Jesus is teaching to his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the kingdom age, as some people believe and teach, but for the age of grace as he, as a believer, lives out his life in the filling and dependency on the Holy Spirit, depending on Jesus Christ. There's no other way you can live this out. It is not by moral goodness, by man's abilities, but by this new birth through the Holy Spirit. Uh, We got to the third example of the six that Jesus uses to expose the wrong teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees about the law. And um, then he gives the proper teaching interpretation as correction, revealing that the law was spiritual. Dealing with the heart and not so much as the outward obedience is not mechanical. The law is holy, just, and good, and we are sold to sin. And God is always after our heart. The Old Testament says, circumcise your heart. That's what he's after all the time. And so, here in um, verse 33 of chapter 5, we pick up on the proclamation of the fourth example for the law, the law of oaths. In verse 33, it says, Again, I say to you that it um, was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair black or white. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than this is from the evil one. And so here again, um, the proclamation here, the expression you have heard has been said, the teaching of the old um, Pharisees, Sadducees, um, those of the elders uh, that came out of Babylon as they developed the system, um, the swearing, uh, swearing things falsely to perform an oath. In other words, they would take oaths to, to try to snow God or just take oaths to try to make themselves credible. Um, when you look at verse 34 to 37, you have the correction and the clarification of the law of oaths here. Jesus placed himself as the ultimate authority. You have heard that has been said of old and different phrases he uses, but I say to you. Jesus is teaching that no one should use any form of oath to authenticate his words in terms of trying to make themselves believable, taking things something higher than themselves as if that's going to do it. All these being the various oaths that the Jews were taken. It goes back to Leviticus 19.12, Numbers 30, verse 2, Deuteronomy 23.21. And, you know, we, we, we were in the world, people say, I swore on a stack of Bibles, I swore on my mother's grave. You know, all that kind of stuff. First of all, when somebody's taking an oath like that, he's probably saying because they know he's a liar and you can't believe him. Um, the bottom line is what he said in the last verse, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be a person of your word. Jesus gives the corresponding reason for prohibiting it to, um, to not do this. Jesus, in verse 37, is not speaking against civil oaths or um, courtroom oaths, but only oaths that attempt to validate your own trustworthiness or honesty. He says, say yes, say no. There was a time in this country when your word was your bond. Um, it still is in the Midwest. The weirdness is the East and the West Coast. That's the head and the tail. The in-between is okay. <laughs> uh, much of that still goes on, though um, it's getting more corrupted as East and Coast people go to the middle. But um, nevertheless, um, anything else is from the evil one. Um, 
so some people try to use, well, I can't take an oath, I can't go to court and all that because I'm a Christian. That's not what it's speaking about that. It's, it's totally wrong. Um, in, in verse 38, we have the proclamation here of the fifth example of the law. It's revenge and retaliation. Um, verse 38, he says, You have heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn other to him also. If anyone wants to... Well, let's just stop there. Let's just take that one because he's going to give different examples here. In verse 38 there, the proclamation here, um, again, the, the context is revenge and retaliation. So again, the same expression you have heard has been said about the old, the ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. Um, this verse often is used by people uh, of having the right for revenge. You know, the Bible says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, wound for wound and whatever. And you go back to the law. In Exodus 21, 23, 24, in Leviticus 19, 20, and Deuteronomy also 19, 21. And so they use it that way. But really, this verse uh, is not what it's saying. In context here, the eye for the eye and tooth for the tooth is a limitation upon your vengeance and retaliation. You see, if I knock one of your teeth out, you want to knock ten of mine out. See? So it's a limitation. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a standard of justice. The punishment must fit the crime. It's a limitation. That's what it's doing on your retaliation. In this context, it was for the judges to control and administrate just recompense without extreme vengeance or ongoing retaliation. Not a command to exercise one's rights. So these things that Jesus chose, and these were the edicts to the judges to bring justice to the civil order of the nation. In verse 39, he gives the correction and clarifications of vengeance and retaliation down to 42. He says, but I say to you, resist the evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. If anyone wants to sue you and take you away, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Wow. A lot of stuff there. Notice here, Jesus again, the ultimate authority. I say to you. And Jesus, in the first illustration, to not resist evil, taught to be patient when provoked to retaliate. The theme is not to resist an evil person. So whoever slaps you, hand them the other side. But this kind of a slap is back and forth with the hand in that, which means it's to provoke you. To entice you to retaliate. And Jesus is saying now the natural bent is for us to not to. This is not speaking against self-defense when someone's trying to hurt you. This is not a person who wants to hurt you. He's trying to, he's, he's insulting you. He's provoking you. That's what it's talking about. If someone breaks in your house and begins to try to strangle one of your children or rape your wife, are you not going to say nothing? You're just going to kneel down and pray? I don't think I am. So it's not speaking against self-defense. In fact, Jesus told the disciples, go sell your sword. And later on at the end of the minute, says, now you better go buy a sword. Okay? So the Bible never speaks about uh, not, never speaks about against self-defense, okay? Jesus, in the second illustration, is not to, res to not resist evil, um, taught that in lawsuits, 
One takes away a tunic. Give them your cloak. The cloak was the outer garment that the poor people had and they were, they, they covered themselves at night that when they took a loan or something, they would give it to the guy as surety for the day and then when sundown went down, they were to give it back to them so they wouldn't be cold at night, which would be more valuable than the first one that is mentioned here. Um, and again, this goes back to the law. But this does not mean or command us to give everything away. But again, he's speaking about people who, um, who perhaps would take us to a, a, a lawsuit and God would, uh, and we would see the benefit of doing and giving and paying the whatever uh, judgment is given um, to be able to get off if necessary. But also at the same time that we're not materialistic. Now, certainly you don't want to carry any of these things to the extreme that doesn't make any sense or reason. In other words, we're going to get to the one in front of us a little bit. That speaks about whoever asks you, you know, do not deny him. Well, if that was the case, you, you know, you'd give everything away you had. So what it, whenever you're interpreting the scripture, when it doesn't make sense or it contradicts what's justice and what's, what's moral or ethical, you know your interpretation is wrong. Okay, so again, you put it back in the context and the culture that he's speaking in. Um, everything has to be under um, customary uh, reason and justice. Uh, to the civil society of man. Um, we're, not, we're servants, but we're not doormats. Uh, we are to be patient. We are to be loving. We're to not be materialistic. We're to put more value on human life than things. Uh, so these are principles that guide us. Uh, remember that the Pharisees and scribes were teaching something real mechanical and outward. And this goes to the inward, the heart. Your attitude, your motives, as God is dealing with you. Now, Jesus, in the third illustration, to not resist evil, taught that the Jew was to be obedient to the law, that any Roman soldier or citizen could compel a Jew to carry his goods in the road. They had markings of mile markings to carry his goods for a mile. So if you put a sword on your shoulder, that's it. You have to pick it up and carry it. Jesus says, now, now he's evil. He's, he's playing power over you. But you as a Christian, you know what? When you get to that mile, carry the second mile. The attitude. Our hearts. He goes right back to that again. Then Jesus in the fourth illustration. To not resist evil. Taught to be generous and kind. If it is in your power. Verse 42. Okay? Notice he says there, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. This goes back to the law also. Exodus 20, verse 15. Deuteronomy 24, 12. If it's in your power, don't say, Hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? You know, I really do. It's in the shop. And it's in the garage. Okay? Now, we all have people who are takers. And there's always people that's all they are. They're never givers. So when there's people like that, I'm going to go out of my way to help them and to show them love. But you don't let them take advantage or abuse you. You've got to use common sense, right? All right? And that's what he's talking about here. Otherwise... Um, you know, one neighbor says, can I have your car? Oh, sure, go ahead. And, you know, can I have your house? Sure. What do you do? Can I have your wife? Oh, sure, don't worry about it. No. All those things go against morality and ethics and hard work and everything else. So you want to use common sense. Now, when you get to verse 43, down to 48, you have the sixth and last example from the law, uh, loving our enemies. In verse 43, he says... Um, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, 
and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The proclamation of the sixth is the example of love for one's neighbor. Notice in verse 33, the same expression you have heard that has been said. In contrast, Jesus, the ultimate authority, I say to you. Now, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy is found nowhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere. But see, they, they rationalize this. You find love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19.18. In fact, the Lord asked Jesus, which is the greatest command, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the two great commandments. Okay? But hating your neighbor was never in the Scriptures. But they taught that your neighbor is only a Jew. That's racism. That's true racism. Okay? So, if there's Gentiles around you, they're your enemies. They're not your neighbors, so you got to hate them. Not to show you that that's exactly what they believe. You've read the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The Levite, the Pharisee. They've ignored the enemy. But the Samaritan, who they call a half-breed, <laughs> half-Gentile, half-Jew, he's the one that had pity. In fact, we have Good Samaritan laws on our books that go from, come from the Bible. <laughs> when you see somebody in trouble on the road and you pull aside and you help them, or a burning building, we have Good Samaritan laws. Now, we don't hear much about them, but they're there. They've probably called them something else. But um, renamed them. Verse 44 and 45, the correction and clarification of loving one's neighbor. Once again, plainly, the higher and ultimate authority, I say to you. He's correcting. They were teaching just this mechanical stuff that was just crazy. You know, when they, like in the oaths that we looked at, if you swear by heaven, if you swear by the earth, this and that. And it's just insane. The oaths. Jesus taught we are to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, and pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. We have seen this throughout history in the Christian church. This has been lived out. You and I are recipients of Christians who have believed and lived this stuff out. Many of them um, went to their deaths praying for their enemies. Um, Jesus did it from the cross. Stephen, in the book of Acts, did it as they were stoning him to death, as Paul gave his consent to that. And so has the history of the church, many, many of this kind. In fact, in Exodus twenty-two twenty-one, it says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were stranger in the land of Egypt. Just the opposite, Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. He said, Because you were a stranger and you were oppressed, now you know what you shouldn't do to someone who's not a Jew. Israel was to be centripetal. They were to be a light to the world to bring people into the nation of Israel. They failed. They exalted themselves rather than to make people come in to preach the, the gospel in, in a sense from the Old Testament perspective. Okay? They exalted themselves. Exodus 23, 4 says, If you meet your enemy's ox in his donkey uh, going astray, and you shall surely bring it back to him again. So what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching is completely contrary to the law. But again, it was their interpretation. J Jesus gives you the clear reason for that for believers, for loving sinners as their heavenly father. He says that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we're to be like our heavenly father. You know, God says, okay, I'm going to smoke all the people. They're not going to get no rain. Now, he did that in the Old Testament. Many times he withheld rain. If you look at the, read the book of Amos, that's perfectly clear there in many other places. Okay? Judgment. 
But God doesn't stop the rain from falling and benefiting the people that are evil in the world right now. He may at time or another, but basically he allows rain to benefit good and evil. Now, if our Heavenly Father does that, says we as children are to be the same. And that's what he's talking about here. This is the second mention of Father here in Matthew. The first was in 5.16. Now, when you get to verse 46 and 47, the illustrations used are clear here um, for the instructions for the believer to be different than the world. For if you love those, in verse 46, who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collector do the same? And so we are to be like our heavenly father who sent the son to die for the world because he loves the world and not like the people in the world. Even here it says, do not even tax collectors. They were the lowest in that day. They were considered the lowest. Matthew was a tax collector. There's a little hint here. And he, being a Jew, was a double traitor. Because he took taxes from the Jew paid to Rome. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Well, he hits it hard. Greet all those. Verse 47. Not just our friends. Otherwise, we are no different than the most despicable people. The tax collectors. <laughs> it's still kind of the same today, huh? <laughs> no different. Amazing. Some of the most despised people. They can make you or break you. If, if you would submit your tax to one person... And they went through it and most likely they would just give you your return and everything. But if someone had it out for you and they worked for the IRS, they would be able to find something to just break you 100%. Because it's a matter of interpretation. It is so vast, so complicated, so intricate. It's amazing. Verse 48, the proclamation of the high standard is given. Be perfect as you have any father and perfect. The word perfect there has the idea to the end or the limit. The idea is used for a mature Christian. And certainly if we're mature, we understand these things. We know how to handle the word of God. But at the same time, perfect has the idea of sinless in that. And it brings you to the end of yourself. And it's exactly what the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is. We cannot do it in ourselves. We need the power and the spirit of God to be able to live this stuff out. To be obedient to God. That we might cry out to him and depend upon him. The context speaks of agape love here. The bond of perfection in 1 John chapter 4 verse 17 through 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 from verse 8 on down. Uh, 4 to 8. It describes the potential of agape love. It believes all things, hopes all things. It never fails. Uh, it's an incredible power that God has given to us to be like him even through the most difficult times in our lives. And yet, um, He is able to do that through us. And there are so many lives of um, glorious saints that have just been such an example. Daniel, Joseph, and many within our own generation and past generations um, that have just trusted God in very difficult times of their lives. Now, when we come to chapter 6, we have three examples of self-righteousness that Jesus um, is going to give warning about. In verse 1 through 4, we have the first warning against display of self-righteousness. He says, uh, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward uh, from your heavenly Father or your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly." The first warning against display of self-righteousness here is the charitable deeds 
passed as righteous acts. Those things that can be seen of men. Notice he says, take heed. It means to hold the mind on a matter. Consider the topic of this. The charitable deed here literally is mercy on giving. As righteous acts before men, as a warning to be seen of men. Do it in such a way to where the Lord would let's just say that you felt like giving, helping somebody out and, 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 and you decided to do it right after the service. And as I'm, they're coming up for prayer, I'm praying for them. And you walk and say, brother, the Lord told me to give you a hundred dollars. Here it is. Don't mention it. God told me. Lord bless you. You walk out. Well, you did it to be seen of men as everybody would go. But when people are grounded and taught, they're going to say, what a carnal guy. Now, if they're not grounded, they're going to be impressed with you. They're going to think you're so kind and generous and spiritual. But when people are grounded and walk with God, they see you for who you are. So here, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. The Father will reward, give full payment. If we do things the way we're supposed to. The word their reward appears three other times in verse 4, 6, and 18. They're looking for the reward with man, so they have the reward. It's stated three times in verse 2, 5, and 16. Matthew goes from what the Pharisees were teaching in chapter 5 to what they were practicing in chapter 6. Love for self versus love for God. Going back to Matthew five twenty, verse 16 and 48. Religious people, they want to impress other people. They want to have the praises and the admiration of those that are around them. In verse 2, the prohibition against doing deeds in an ostentatious way to call attention to oneself, to seek the glory of man is dealt with. When you do do these terrible deeds, do not sound the trumpet before men. Meaning to call attention, as I just pointed out, that all would see you. And, and what's weird is that many churches cater to this. They have fundraisers and they do it from the pulpit and they have a special Sunday and say, okay, who's going to give $100? And you can go platinum, you can go, you know, you know, bronze and silver and gold and super gold and one star, this star, and, you know, we'll put your name on a parking stall, a toilet seat or whatever and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they, they're carnal and they know people are carnal so they use carnal means to motivate carnal people which demonstrate they're more carnal than the people they're motivating. My Lord, are you kidding me? Wow. This is to act like the hypocrite. In the days of Jesus. Who did so in the synagogues. In the streets. To have glory from men. Verse 2. Jesus says, surely I say to you, you have the reward. And yet the Old Testament, Exodus 23, Exodus 30, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 15, many other places. You're to be generous to the poor. You're to help them out. They weren't to glean all their fields, leave a portion for them to, rather than get unemployment, they go work for their food, have some self-respect, some dignity. They, they, they care for themselves. Always being kind. The book of, of, of uh, Ruth, uh, Boaz was merciful to Ruth. Okay, Let her glean in the fields. Compassion, pity. Verse 3 and 4, the proper instruction for charitable deeds. Jesus said, do it in the most natural way and discreet. Illustrated by the not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Oh, that's good. Just do it as unto the Lord. Let no one see it. 
So verse 4, Jesus says, Do as secretly unto God, and He will reward you openly. See, the true test of your trust in God is you go to your closet, you shut the door, you pray to Him, and we'll go through this right now. And then what you're praying to God, and you're not dropping hints to everybody in the church, and then God provides for you or does what, he, what you're asking Him for, then you know God is the one who answered you, not the one that you dropped the hints on that gave it to you. Okay? Too often people drop hints and this and that and, and then somebody, you know, they get moved. And, well, I'll help them. And, and God isn't in it. It's just a person. We're to go to God. If we believe what the scripture says, we're to go to God. And let God provide that. So that my faith grows in trusting God. And so that I don't lose any reward. It's very, very simple. Verse 5 through 8, you have the second warning against self-righteous praying. He says, Hypocrite. Oops, hang on. I thing turned over here. And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrite. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue, corner of the streets, all of that. And so they bring attention to themselves over and over again. And again, we see much of this on tragically, quote, quote, Christian TV. Uh, you know, uh, it's no more Christian than uh, grape nut. What is this? Neither grape nor nut. What's a grape nut? Uh, it's a um, contradiction. So the prohibition on prayer in verse 5 says, Don't pray like the hypocrites, actors, to be seen of men in, in the various locations here, uh, standing in the synagogue, the corners of the streets. This was the usual formality. The Pharisees and the scribes would do this as people would, you know, and they would go through the streets and pick up their the robes so that it wouldn't touch by the people and pick up cootie sins, you know, because they were so holy. But they loved to hear the praise. They blow the trumpet, here I am, you know, and listen to me, and oh, Father, I thank you, I'm not like, you know, this and that. Well, we, we hear prayers like that when people are in public. Uh, they want to be heard of men. Um, nothing has changed. They prayed the word Shema to hear every morning and evening at early dawn, no later than 9 a.m. And the evening, no later than 9 p.m., regardless where they were, according to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And also Numbers 15, 37 through 41. Daniel prayed three times a day too, right? But these guys did it no matter what, where. Didn't matter. Kind of like the Muslims. They just dropped their carpet and on their face, right? In fact, they impose it on us now, right? Middle of the street. No problem. To be seen of men. To oppress men. To exalt themselves above men. Interesting. They prayed 18 prayers three times a day. 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m. Wow. Jesus condemns them. Mechanical. Worthless. They desire to be seen and be rewarded by the praise of men. So Jesus says, surely I say to you, they have the reward. Verse 5. Jesus is the highest authority. In verse 6, you have the instruction on prayer. He says, pray. Prayer is to be in secret to God, indicated by going into the room, shutting the door, concealed from everyone, absolutely everyone. Well, this is not condemning public prayer, as you know, but simply that, you know, you go to God trusting Him to answer. Prayer is not to be like the heathen. Uh, look at uh, verse um, 6. He says, But you, when, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Then when you pray, do not use vain repetition 
as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. And so, prayer is not to be like the heathen, empty, repetitive words. I was raised a Catholic. I prayed like a parrot, repeatedly. Repeating the same old thing while my mind was just blank. Thinking that I would be heard. Bowing, kneeling, sign of the cross, this and that. That's being religious. God wants you to talk to him. What would you think as a parent of your, and we even change our voice. What would you think if your son came in, oh mom, I need a dollar. That's how many people pray, you know what I mean? They change when they're praying. I need a dollar, I need a dollar, I need a dollar, I need a dollar. Mom, I need a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, mom, I need a dollar. Why would we insult God if we wouldn't insult man like that? Vain repetition. Thinking that in the many words that they're going to be heard. I speak the way I speak because I was born a Catholic and raised a Catholic. I know Catholicism. I'm not speaking out of my ear. And Catholicism has made a great comeback. A young revival in the Catholic Church. To pull as many Catholics that left the Catholic Church back into the quote, quote, mother church. Mother of harlots, the book of Revelation says. Corrupting the word of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so, the repetition in verse 7. False pretenses, making long prayers. Like the priest of Baal and Mount Carmel, the power encounter with Elijah. Pretense of long prayers in the corners, Mark twelve forty, Luke twenty forty seven. Prayer is not to be after the heathen pagan practices. God knows the things that we need of before we ask, and we should trust Him, lift those needs to Him in secret, and He will uh, reward us openly. Now, when you get to verse nine down to thirteen, you have the model prayer for the disciples of Jesus. Um, Everybody knows this prayer, but um, they call it the Lord's Prayer. But it can't be the Lord's Prayer because Jesus couldn't have prayed this prayer because it asked for forgiveness of sins, and Jesus had no sin. So it's a model prayer. So beginning verse 9, he says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, holy be thy name, or hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil, uh, the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, in verse 9, we have the man who were to pray. This is not, again, the Lord's Prayer. But the disciples and the content is the focus. Um, it's not to be repeated like a formula prayer that just guarantees answers. Um, the priority is first God, then man. The model of prayer contains first worship, then intercession, then petition, then ends in worship. I should begin my prayer by worshiping God, thanking God, not just jumping in. Lord, I need this, 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 this. Okay, I'll be back. At five? Have it by five? Okay. The model of prayer is marked by brevity, simplicity. Priorities. Verse 9, we see worship. Our Father in heaven indicating our relationship to God as Father, which was foreign to Old Testament saints. The Old Testament only has God as the Father of the nation, never to an individual. Only in the New Testament is He our Father individually. You'll never find the Old Testament. God is in heaven. There are three heavens, as you know, where birds fly, where the stellar heavens are, the planets, the stars, and then the third heaven where God dwells. Uh, Genesis 1 gives you the, the two, and then um, 
Paul speaks about the third heaven where he is caught up, where God dwells in 2 Corinthians 12.4. Then notice holy or hollow is his name. Um, so holy they believed his name was that they didn't want to write the name of God anymore, though God never intended that. So they left out the vowels and only wrote the consonants. Uh, Y-H-V-H. So we don't know if it's Yahweh or Yahweh, um, but certainly it's not Jehovah. And, uh, but God never intended that. It's called a tetragrammaton, a big old word for the consonants. Uh, verse 10, notice, then comes intercession. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So everything should be focused upon God establishing this kingdom. First in me, okay? And his will to be as in heaven. Uh, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Verse 11 gives you petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. The idea of being day by day, meaning depending on him like the man in the wilderness. Provisions, not luxuries. Uh, we as Americans have much more. The poorest person in America has much more than some of the rich people of the world. So it's a matter of perspective. Verse 12, you have forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Notice that. Things we have done, committed. Just as we forgive our debtors to be the extent of our forgiveness that we come back and we give to others. In proportion to Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13. In proportion as God has forgiven me, I'm to forgive others. That makes me a debtor. Because no one will ever sin against me as much as I have sinned against God. Keep that in mind. Forgiveness is releasing, dismissing to be free of that debt and that bitterness. To cut the ball and chain. Verse 13. You have the confident trust. Do not lead us into temptation. In other words, keep us from being led into evil. Um, as we depend upon him, we still have a sin nature. Uh, my heart is evil above all things, desperately wicked. God cannot tempt men with evil, neither does tempt any man. James tells us, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, I tempt myself. Um, Satan tempts me, but I'm the one that either yields or not. I'm the one responsible. I have to trust the Lord. Deliver us from the evil one. Um, God will never allow us to be tested more than we're able. With every testing shows the way of escape, First Corinthians ten thirteen says. I love that verse, and I hate it. I love it because it's available to me. I hate it when I don't depend on it and use it. Because when I fail, I know I should have passed. I'm the one at fault. First Peter 5 eight says that Satan is going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The warnings to the believer, not the non-believer. The non-believer belongs to the enemy. Is that clear? Very important. So we're to pray. We enter not into temptations. Luke 22.40 says... Divine enablement acknowledges here for your kingdom come and power and glory forever. Our dependency on him, our desire, our priorities of life, him. When you get to 14 and 15, we have the conditions to be forgiven after salvation, which might sound strange to you, but listen carefully. He's talking about prayer, having access to God, right? Verse 14 says, for if you forgive men... Their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now, if he can't forgive you, you're out of fellowship. By the way, trespasses is willful disobedience, not missing the mark, sin. Missing the mark is you're looking, you're aiming, boom, you're a bad shot, you miss. Trespass is a willful disobedience. You know you shouldn't do it, and you do it anyway. Wow. So my fellowship with God is dependent upon my releasing others from the debt they have that are against me. Have you read these verses? Very important. Okay? Verse 16 through 18. You have the third warning against self-righteous fasting. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that... They may appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have 
the reward. Verse 16. So the prohibition on fasting, the wrong way to do it. We're not to fast like those hypocrite actors. You know, they walk around, oh, brother, no. Hey, you want to go eat lunch? No, man, I'm fasting. I'm sorry. I'm seeking the Lord. Really? The desire to be recognized and be praised of men. Uh, the Old Testament required only one day of fast on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. They fasted twice a week, Thursdays, because Moses ascended to Sinai, and Monday he descended. You find this in Luke 18, 11 through 12. All these things they added to the law. God never intended this stuff. Now, fasting, all these things are legitimate, but the way they were interpreting and doing them is not. Jesus said, Surely I say to you, you have your reward, the recognition, the admiration of men, not God. 17, 18, you have the instructions on fasting. He says, But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so, here again, you do what you do seeking God because there's something that's on my heart. I want to hear from God. I want to show God. I want to hear His voice. So I give myself uh, to fasting, whether it be a day, whether it be two days, whether it be just a meal or whatever. That's between you and God. To hear the voice of God. Not that God's going to look down and say, oh, he's kind of hungry. I better answer him. No, we don't, we don't move God that way. But, you know, when, when you get bad news, you, haven't, um, uh, you went to work, you were, you were late, you didn't eat breakfast, and, and then you're just about to go have lunch, you're starving, and all of a sudden you get a call, you know, your wife's been in a wreck, and you rush to the hospital. And you're there a day and a half, and you haven't eaten, and you're not even hungry. Why? Because you're concerned about your wife. You're not concerned about your hunger. You're so overwhelmed by your preoccupation over her that your hunger is not even a fact. And the same thing that God, you're just dealing with some things and you want to hear from God that your hunger is not even, it shouldn't be just something we do mechanical, but something that God moves upon us to seek Him. Not to twist His arm. It's not biblical. And so, you know, um, comb your hair, wash your face, put a smile so no one knows that you're fasting, hunger and thirst after God, deny yourself, tune your ear to God's voice. The, old, the high priest, they used to put blood on his right thumb, his right ear, his right toe to hear the voice of God, to do the work of God and to walk in the ways of God. And that's important. 19 to 34, you have the three warnings now to believers. Uh, 19 through 21, the warning against amassing uh, material wealth. He says, do not lay up to yourselves treasures in earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in um, to steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, the warning is about amassing and putting a priority on material wealth. Um, treasures on earth are temporal. 19, we do not store up for ourselves treasures on earth. The concept behind treasures is that which a person puts their trust on, their dependency on instead of God. There's nothing wrong with money or things in themselves. Um, there's nothing wrong with the savings. But it's wrong to live for those savings or depend on those things and not trust God, not pray to God, not look to God. It's important. Everything on earth is decaying. It can be stolen. Moth, rust, and thieves can break in and steal. The idea is to hoard and to be greedy. This is what people live for. In verse 20, the heavenly treasures are eternal. What a contrast. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The concept behind this is treasures of spiritual things. The things we do. How we do them, what we do with our finances, our time, our deeds. Are they to the glory of God? Are they going to enhance and enrich people in Christ and, and advance the kingdom? All these things in secret. We don't let the right hand know 
what the right and left hand is doing and vice versa, but we do it as unto the Lord. Nothing in heaven is decaying or nothing in heaven can be stolen. So invest in heaven. You'll get great returns. The stock market in heaven just constantly grows. It never has a bad day. <laughs> Only here on earth. Look at 21. The test of what we are living for is given. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Localize your treasure and you will find your heart. Say your profession. Is it a car? Is it a woman? A man? Bank account? What is it? That's what your heart's going to be. Find your treasure. Your heart will be there. 22 to 24, you have the second warning against evil motives and attitudes of the heart. It says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so the lamp of the body being the eye refers to the kind of truth we live by and how we perceive. The eye being good by the light of God's word, the individual's body is full of light, having repented and living in faith in Christ Jesus. The eye being bad by the light of the fallen world and sinful nature of man is full of darkness, not having repented. But nevertheless, as Christians, we can have repented and get mixed up in sin again, like Peter says, and the corruption of this world it tangles us up again, and our latter end is worse than the first, right? So we must guard what we take into our eyes, into our ears, into our heart. Because we sow to the flesh, we reap to the flesh. We sow to the spirit, we reap to the spirit. Very important. Galatians makes that very, very clear. So this sinful darkness has a growing capacity for evil there in verse 23. And in 24, the caution is to make sure that we have no rival to Christ that will make us un. Faithful. He's speaking to his disciples. Keep this in mind. No person can serve Christ and sin. You cannot have two girlfriends at a time and like them equally. Impossible. We will hate the one and love the other, or else we will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You have Achan as an example who took of the Babylonian garments and gold. Gehazi, who took of the reward of Naaman. Saul, many examples. This speaks of the inner man, the heart, and the warning is to the believer that his heart not be divided about the cares of the world. From 25 to 34, you have the third and last warning of anxiety over material things. Verse 25 says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look to the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your, are you not more valuable than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit, 18 inches to your stature? You wish. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, there's the ultimate authority, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven or the fire, will he not much more clothe you, 
all you of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so the prohibition against being anxious about daily needs of life, don't worry about maintaining life there in the it tells us in verse 25, Philippians 4, 6 through 8, be anxious for nothing, everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Isaiah 26, 3 says, uh, you will keep him who has in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The greater value of life is not the things. If God has given us life, which is more valuable, will he not provide the things of life? Yes. The instruction to trust God is in 26, the illustration of birds. They neither toil nor spin. You know, they're not carrying a wheelbarrow and reaping a man. Okay, look, come on, winter's coming. They just trust God. God takes care of them. And by the way, when you tell somebody you eat like a bird, you're telling them you're calling them a pig because birds eat five, five, seven times their weight. Okay? So it's really an oxymoron. Okay? So this does not teach laziness or responsibility, but trust in God. This does not teach prohibition against savings if, if you have some savings away, as long as you're not trusting in them. And 27 to 30, the uselessness of worrying. 18 inches, can you add that by worrying? Of course not, verse 27. The illustration in verse 28, the lilies of the field, you know, they don't worry. They don't toil nor spin, and yet they grow beautifully. I say that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. Now Solomon had the most incredible fabrics of the kingdom, of the world. Everybody came to him. You take the most delicate cloth that Solomon had and you take a little pebble and you get it. It doesn't compare to the natural pebble of a God. A lily. God creates and the next day, the sun fries it up. How much more are you about more valuable than that little lily or the bird's? He knows every bird that falls. He knows every hair on your head. We're to trust him. Walk with him. Verse 31 to 34, the conclusion of the matter of living anxious about these things of life is given to us. In 31, we're commanded to not worry about food, drink, or clothing. 32, we are not to act like non-believers who live for these things. The Gentiles seek these things. Nothing wrong with these things, but we don't live for these things. 33, the priority of the believer is to be the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto us. I walked with God for 43 years. I can attest to you that God has always been faithful. God hates lazy people. The word to work. You don't work, you don't need. Very clear. Okay, but God is faithful. He will go before you. You might read Psalm 91. It kind of encapsulates the Sermon on the Mount also. It goes hand in hand. In 34, we're to understand that each day is full of enough of its own troubles. We don't have to add tomorrow's trouble on today. Tomorrow may never come. But at least we worry, right? Wow. Important things for the Sermon on the Mount. Things that you and I need every day. That's why it's important for you to read through the Bible all the time. Letting God deal with you, minister to you. And that you put that in your mind, in your heart, so that the Holy Spirit can bring it out. When those difficult times come, when those times of pressure and anxiety, and that God can speak to your heart and guide us. You and myself, we're the same. None of us is greater than another. We're all just uh, hopelessly and uh, miserably lost without Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Him, 
the hope of glory. Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness, and we thank you for tonight, and I thank you for every person here, and I pray that you would continue to deal with our hearts. And Lord, we want to thank you for all that you've done in this church and that you continue to do for the lives you have changed, Lord, for just the transformation of so many and, and the, your, your incredible mercy to provide for us, to deal with us, to just go before us. And so, Lord, we look to you, no one else. And we pray, Lord, that you would show yourself strong tonight on those who have been listening here and those over the Internet. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, you might be over the Internet. If you don't know him, Jesus Christ is God who became man. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. And he says that he tasted death for you. He made the payment for your sin. He took your place on the cross. And if you believe that, that you can call upon his name and be saved. And you will be justified in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And your sins will be cast as far as east as the west. Buried in the deepest ocean. As you depend on the atoning work of Christ to be saved by grace. Through faith, trusting him and what he did for you. If this is your desire... This is the prayer of repentance as you call upon him to forgive you and to make you his child. You can repeat it right where you sit or over the internet. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.